This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. The Nonprofit Leadership Podcast is supported by First Republic Bank. With First Republic, everyone gets a personal banker who will sit down and learn about you and your goals. You're then connected with specialists and solutions you may not have considered. Isn't it time you align yourself with a bank that believes in you and your future success? Learn more at firstrepublic.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. As a leader of a nonprofit, you know firsthand how important it is to have the right technology, tools, and strategies in place to achieve your mission. Well, that's where Heller Consulting comes in. Heller Consulting is a premier consulting firm that specializes in helping nonprofit organizations achieve their goals through effective technology strategy and implementation. Whether you need help with technology roadmaps, CRM strategy, Salesforce, or Microsoft implementations, Team Heller has you covered. With Heller Consulting on your side, you can trust that you'll have the support you need to make the most of your organization's technology resources. Visit teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Again, that's teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Do your investments align with your values? Well, now is the time to increase your triple bottom line to better people, profit, and the planet. Amalgamated Investment Services, a division of America's socially responsible bank, has a deep-seated commitment to affecting systemic change through investments. By specializing in triple bottom line impact, they can help navigate the common hurdles experienced by nonprofit organizations and foundations from creating a sustainable policy statement to avoiding the all-too-prevalent greenwashing. If you'd like to join them in creating a more just and sustainable world, please visit amalgamatedbank.com slash nonprofit investing. Securities offered through Infinex Investments Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Amalgamated Investment Services is a trade name of Amalgamated Bank. Infinex and Amalgamated Bank are not affiliated. Welcome, podcast listeners. Thanks for tuning in today. You know, I wanted to start out by giving you all a big shout out for listening. I know I've said it before, so at the risk of being a broken record, just wanted to say again, thank you. Thanks for helping me grow this podcast. It has been so exciting to see more listeners tune in and see the reach of this podcast grow over the years. So thank you. You're the reason this is happening. Now, on to the topic for the day. I realize that I've had several guests now on the show to talk about change. And I think one of the reasons that is the case is because change is hard. And yet change is often necessary to help your organization grow and improve. Now, one of the many insights that you will hear today with my guest is what you need to know when it comes to creating a tipping point for change. I think many of us think that when we seek to bring about change, we need to get everyone in our organization on board before we can really cross over the tipping point for the proposed change to be successful and to have positive momentum. Now, you may be surprised to learn that the research does not agree with that and bear this out. In fact, my guest today will share more about what and how you can create enough momentum to create a tipping point for positive change. My guest is Alex Budak. He is both an author and professor at Cal Berkeley. He has uncovered some really interesting insights when it comes to how you and I can become more effective change makers. 
Enjoy today's show. Well, Alex, so fun to have you on the show today. Oh, Robin, delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me. You got it. Well, today we're going to talk about a subject that for many really is a four-letter word, and that's change. Change is hard. In fact, I found that change is much harder than most leaders think when it comes to implementing change into their own organization. Now, you've done a lot of research on change. You've written a book on change that's research-backed. It's really a guide, if you will, to develop how to develop the right mindset and leadership skills needed to navigate, shape, and lead change in order to make a positive impact in your organization. So first, I thought we'd start with this question. How does a leader effectively overcome the resistance to change in one's organization? Ooh, change is hard. And a lot of people are scared of change. And so I think where we can start is with the words of Rich Lyons. He's the former dean of the Haas School of Business where I teach. And he says, resistance is rational. Now, sometimes as change makers, we fall in love with our idea. And we think, well, because I believe in this, Everyone else should just automatically believe in it as well. But I think it's important to first make that cognitive switch to go, hey, if someone is giving me some resistance at first, that's actually a rational thing to think about. You know, Maybe they've been part of change efforts before and they've seen them come and go, or they've been excited about a change effort that just fell flat. And so instead of expecting everyone to immediately be on board, you know, let's give people some grace and say, hey, resistance is rational. You know, We're grounded in social science here. Perhaps some of your listeners have heard of something called the status quo bias. This is based on research done by Samuelson and Zeckhauser, their behavioral economists. And basically what they prove is that people tend to overvalue what they already have. The longer we've had something, the more we're inclined to want to keep it the way that it is, even when the alternative is empirically better. And so as leaders, let's first recognize that change can be really hard and that resistance can actually be rational. That is so interesting. That's a really good point. And I love how you have actually described yourself that your passion is helping people from all walks of life to learn how to create more impact in their work, their leadership, and their life. And that's such a noble goal. And I fully resonate with your mission. Now, talk more about where does this come from? Was this something you've had a focus on for a long time? Where did the motivation and passion come from? Well, I think I've always wanted to lead some type of change, but never knew exactly how to, to go about it. So I was born and raised in the Silicon Valley Bay area. So you know, kind of always surrounded by entrepreneurship, but was never inspired by the kind of traditional entrepreneurship of you know starting a company, flipping it to Google or Apple. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's just not what motivated me. But I did want to lead some type of change. And so for graduate school, I went out to Washington, DC to study public policy. And I think that within the first like week or two, I realized Okay, I'm a little too entrepreneurial to be in this policy program. Met amazing people, but you know, they were kind of thinking about change in the big institutions. There's a place for that. So I took a little bit of time off and spent some time living and volunteering in India. I was in Ahmedabad, India, and I was doing some work with a community group that worked with girls from the local community, used sport as a tool to teach healthy habits and leadership. And that's where that sort of aha moment came for me where I realized that change doesn't just come from the big institutions like my friends were pursuing, not just the World Bank and the UN, but also from small grassroots organizations like people like Amunabad Girls Sports Club. I recognized there in that moment that there's change makers quite literally all around the world. But as I would navigate the windy, chaotic streets back from practices to where I was staying, you know, my mind would just wander. And I'd think about all the barriers getting in the way of people starting good, of people becoming change makers. 
And that's where that sort of red thread of my life and my career came open to say, hey, there's people like this, there's change makers all around the world from all walks of life. How can we help more of them lead change from where they are? I really like that. And you know, what's interesting as I read a little bit more about you, I understand you have quite the reputation at the University of California at Berkeley as having this class in particular that uh, became one of the most popular classes on campus. Tell me more about how maybe your experience in India then translated into your teaching, which then led to so many people being inspired with both what you were teaching, but also how you were teaching. Yes, there's a couple of steps there. So the experience in India sort of helped me develop my own identity as a social entrepreneur, right? So kind of combining the tools of entrepreneurship with the lens of social impact. And that became who I was. And I launched a social enterprise and ran that for a few years. But I also, as a social entrepreneur, recognized that while that was one amazing way to make change, it's certainly not the only way to make change. And so I started thinking there has to be a more inclusive identity that not all of us can or should be social entrepreneurs, but that each of us can lead and create change. And so that's where I started gravitating towards this concept of a change maker. So fast forward a few years, I find myself working in a staff role at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. And I went in to meet with a mentor of mine. His name is Jay Stowski. He's the one that sort of oversees faculty and curriculum at the school. And so I went to him for advice on a career transition. And I think within a few minutes, he sort of realized that my heart wasn't really in it. And so I'll never forget the words he said. He said, but Alex, what do you really want to do? I said, you know, well, what I really want to do is teach. And then I think imposter syndrome got the best of me. And I started mumbling off all the reasons I couldn't be a teacher. You know, I'm not old enough to have experience, blah, blah, blah. But he interrupted me. He said, okay, Alex, what do you want to teach? And in that moment, it just became crystal clear for me. I said, I want to teach becoming a change maker. And to my shock and delight, he looked at me and said, sounds interesting. All right, put together a syllabus, show it to me, and we'll go from there. And so I remember shaking his hands, literally leaping out of my seat, <laughs> walking out of his office, closing the door, immediately pulling out my phone and Googling how to create a syllabus because I had no idea what I was doing. I never taught before. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but recognize this was the moment. This was the chance to create this class. And that's uh, the genesis of it. I love hearing that story. Well, and you really are convinced that every one of us can become a change maker. That's really what your book is all about. What's where your life has been about. Uh, and it starts with how we can learn to start seizing leadership moments around us, and as you say, every day. So what does it look like practically to seize those leadership moments each day? Well, let me talk about it. I teach at a business school, but I think the way we often teach leadership and talk about leadership in companies, organizations, business schools is, is it's broken. And we tend to tell the story of the single heroic leader. So maybe we tell the story of Steve Jobs pulling the iPhone out of his pocket, talk about Mandela uniting a nation, or Eleanor Roosevelt with the Declaration of Human Rights. And to be sure, there's a place for this type of heroic leadership. But I think so many of us look at that and go, well, you know, I'm not naturally an extrovert like them. I'm not as brave as them or as courageous as them, as charismatic as them. Does that mean I can't be a leader? But I think, no, absolutely not. I think each and every one of us can be a leader. But I think for too long, we've confused positions of leadership with acts of leadership. And so while leaders might be scarce, there may be only one executive director in your organization. Each and every one of us can practice leadership. And so in the book, I put forward this new concept that I call micro-leadership, which simply breaks leadership down into its smallest and most meaningful unit, which is a leadership moment. So if you think about it, these leadership moments appear before you dozens of times per day. Maybe it's during a meeting, you recognize that one of your colleagues has been kind of quiet and you say, hey, you know, no pressure, but love to hear your perspective if you're willing to share. Or maybe it's being the one person to have the courage to say no when everyone else is saying yes. 
or maybe it's being the one person that stays late to help a new colleague clean up after their first event, right? All these are tiny little leadership moments. No one will ever tell you to not do these things. But the more you seize these leadership moments, you sort of look back and go, hey, I've actually become a leader. The way I think about it, there's three steps to practicing micro-leadership. So the first is to give yourself permission that so many of us, especially if we're from a culture that says, you know, wait your turn, we wait for that permission. And honestly, sometimes that permission never comes. So the first and most brave thing you can do is to step up and believe you can be a leader. It doesn't require a title. It just requires your own permission. So that's step one, give yourself permission. The second is to go beyond yourself. So I believe leadership is rooted in serving others and helping others. And so micro-leadership itself is finding small little ways to improve the lives of others, to step up and serve others in small, meaningful ways each day. And then the third step is simply to take action and to do it again and again and again. Any one leadership moment will not feel like that big of an act. But if you practice micro-leadership consistently, you look back after a week, a month, six months, and you go, wow, I've actually done a lot of what leadership actually is. And I've become a leader before you even realize it. I really like that concept of micro-leadership. Now, as you read this book and did a lot of research along those lines, uh, what were some of your biggest surprises that you uncovered as you were putting this book together? One of the things that I found, and so I, I did over 50 different case studies, so all kinds of different change makers from all walks of life, as you mentioned. One of the things that was really fulfilling for me to see is that almost everyone felt doubt or in insecurity or fear at some point in leading change. And on one hand, you could say, well, you know, that's, that's too bad. People felt that. But I also found a bit of camaraderie in that. And I think we tend to put these leaders up on a pedestal, these change makers up on a pedestal and say, you know, they're superhuman. But in many ways, my research showed me that they're actually more like us than we may think. And that if we all feel those things, it's less about you not feel fear, but more about can you summon that courage from inside to move forward? In my class, I do um, an exercise where I have it's called the change maker of the week. And so each week, a few students will choose a change maker. They could be alive or dead, famous or not. And they have to make the case to the class for why this person is a change maker. They have to use critical thinking and persuasive communication to sort of make these arguments in line with the concepts we teach in the class. And it's so rewarding to me to see the different stories of change makers. And across the board, we have all kinds of amazing stories we, that we learn about. And we see that, well, of course, these change makers are creating impact in fields as diverse as medicine or literature or whatever. But we have these common traits. We have these common approaches to leading change. And that actually, a lot of us feel that fear in leading change, but we persist in spite of it. That is really interesting. I like that. Well, um, one of the other things that you mentioned in this book is there are some common traits that all successful change makers have. Could you talk about those key traits? What are those and why they're so important? Yeah, so that's where I start the classes. I teach a lot of business students, but I teach students really from across campus, started with undergrads, and I also teach graduate students and teach executives as well. And so I teach in an inclusive way to meet people where they are. I've also started to study, you know, what are the traits that great changemakers have in common? I developed the first ever longitudinal study of changemakers, see how changemakers develop over time. It's called the Changemaker Index. And by the way, if any of your listeners want to take it for yourself, you can go to changemakerbook.com slash index. So you can take this and you'll learn what your greatest strength as a changemaker is. And so by going through that data, we can see that changemakers fall into three different areas. There's three parts of becoming a terrific changemaker. We've got changemaker mindset, changemaker leadership, and changemaker action. So this tool will help you see what your greatest strength is. But you're exactly right that there's common traits across all three that make people a successful changemaker. We'll be right back. 
The Nonprofit Leadership Podcast is supported by First Republic Bank. With First Republic, everyone gets a personal banker who will sit down and learn about you and your goals. You're then connected with specialists and solutions you may not have considered. Isn't it time you align yourself with a bank that believes in you and your future success? Learn more at firstrepublic.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. As a leader of a nonprofit, you know firsthand how important it is to have the right technology, tools, and strategies in place to achieve your mission. Well, that's where Heller Consulting comes in. Heller Consulting is a premier consulting firm that specializes in helping nonprofit organizations achieve their goals through effective technology strategy and implementation. Whether you need help with technology roadmaps, CRM strategy, Salesforce, or Microsoft implementations, Team Heller has you covered. With Heller Consulting on your side, you can trust that you'll have the support you need to make the most of your organization's technology resources. Visit teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Again, that's teamheller.com slash NLP to learn more. Do your investments align with your values? Well, now is the time to increase your triple bottom line to better people, profit, and the planet. Amalgamated Investment Services, a division of America's Socially Responsible Bank, has a deep-seated commitment to affecting systemic change through investments. By specializing in triple bottom line impact, they can help navigate the common hurdles experienced by nonprofit organizations and foundations, from creating a sustainable policy statement to avoiding the all-too-prevalent greenwashing. If you'd like to join them in creating a more just and sustainable world, please visit amalgamatedbank.com slash nonprofitinvesting. Securities offered through Infinex Investments Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Amalgamated Investment Services is a trade name of Amalgamated Bank. Infinex and Amalgamated Bank are not affiliated. Georgia College and State University is Georgia's public liberal arts university. They have a 36-hour Master's of Public Administration program, which is fully online, using innovative techniques to engage students while allowing flexibility for working professionals. The program is fully accredited, and earned U.S. News and World Report's Best Graduate Program ranking in its 2021 edition. There are two 12-hour professional certificates offered alongside the program, Leadership and Nonprofit Management and Election Administration. And if you're out of state, there are no additional costs for out-of-state students. Check out Georgia College and State University today. Well, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you will find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, including some from other countries, all trying to make their world better. And when you go to our website, you can also subscribe to my monthly leadership update in order to get more content, ask me questions, and join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community. Just look for the subscribe button, which is on the top right-hand side. It's a real easy process. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. That's fantastic. I do encourage people to check that out. That's wonderful. Now, you mentioned in that that um, there's leaders who become resilient, creative, collaborative, and optimistic. Those are some of the key traits that you feel like are really what you hope all leaders become. Talk about each one of these descriptors. Uh, why are these so important with, from what you found with your research? Well, let's start with resilience. So I think the way we often talk about resilience, both in sort of the Silicon Valley world and also in the nonprofit world as well, to me, it's kind of broken. So we tend to define resilience as like just enduring as much pain as possible. Like, you know, you just go through things, it's going to be tough and just slog through. I don't like that definition. I prefer a definition, which is staying strong for the long haul. 
So I think one of the things that change makers, the most effective change makers do, is they're able to play the long game. You know, here I'm inspired by the words of Matthew Kelly. And so he says, we tend to overestimate what we can do in a day, underestimate what we can do in a month, overestimate what we can do in a year, and underestimate what we can do in a decade. So I think that's one of the most important things change makers can do is to take that long view. And so any of your listeners who have tried to lead change, you know that it's rocky. There's lots of ups and downs, sometimes even in the same day. But as change makers, we've got to build that resilience, which is not just about putting our head down and enduring pain, but about staying strong for the long haul. I'm starting to bring the resilience to the other traits that you talked about here. I think about some wise words that a friend of mine mentioned when he came to be a guest speaker in my class. His name is Sid Espinoza. He's the first ever Latino mayor of Palo Alto, California. And at the time, he was VP of philanthropy at Microsoft. And so a student asked him a question, which was basically, you know, she's passionate about climate change. But she said, it feel really overwhelming. You feel like it's such a big problem. Like, how could I ever make a dent in it? Is it even worth me trying? And his answer at first surprised me. And I was worried that maybe he had sort of dashed the hopes of these optimistic and ambitious change makers. But actually, they told me afterwards that it was a really inspiring way of thinking about change. So he said, look, as change makers, it's quite possible that the changes you tried to make will not be solved in your lifetime. If you think about like homelessness, for instance, or water access, you know, those are big substantive systemic challenges. He said, your job is not necessarily to try to solve it by yourself. Let's stop thinking about change as an individual sprint. And instead, let's start seeing it as a relay race. That your job is to pick up the baton from those who've come before you. And in the one, five, 10, 15, 20, 40, 50, 60 years, you work on it. Advance the baton as much as you possibly can. And then when the time comes to hand the baton off to the next generation, don't just hand it off to them, but set them up for success, mentor them, support them, nurture them, make sure that they're ready to take the baton and go running with it. And so I think that's an important lens for thinking about change is to stop thinking about change as this thing I individually do. But as I talk about in the book, change making is a team sport. And so bringing others into the change with you, because I believe you'll do your most important work through and with other people. Oh, that's fascinating. I really like that. And obviously it leads into that collaborative aspect of being a good change maker. So prevalent for people to focus on the individual change. Is it because we just desire to, to make that, maybe it's something coming out of our own need to make a change and feel like our life is important and we're making a difference with our life? Where does that come from, do you think? Yes. I mean, there sometimes there's some ego when it comes down to it, but there's also sometimes people just say, look, all I have is this one life. I'm going to do as much good as I can in this one life. And so it can also be rooted in a really good place, which is to try to be of service the most that you possibly can. But here, I love the work that's done around a theme called network-based leadership. Julius C., among other colleagues, wrote about this in Stanford Social Innovation Review. And one of the, the frameworks they talk about is, as a change maker, as a leader of a nonprofit, can you think of yourself as a node, not a hub? So a hub is where you make yourself central to everything, like all the activity swirls around you. Whereas a node is you're playing a part in a greater system. And so, you know, to think about this practically in the kind of nonprofit world, you know, maybe it's not up to you to address all of homelessness in your city. Maybe it's up to you to play one specific role with one specific demographic, with one aspect, with one systemic cause of homelessness and then partner in meaningful ways with them. Now, doing so means that you have to focus a little bit less on your own individual brand and a little bit more on the mission. But I think that's the way that real systemic change will happen is when we think about how we can play a role in the greater sum of things, not just sort of what can we individually make happen on our own. That's a great uh, example. I really like that as an image. 
when you think about perhaps nonprofit organizations that uh, you've interacted with, or you've had a lot of leaders, I'm sure, go through your class, are there either people or organizations that you feel like are really getting this right when it comes to this corporate collaborative approach to change making? So one I love, I lived in Stockholm, Sweden for three years, where I ran an incubator for social innovators. And so one that I really love is an organization, and, and sorry, Rob, I'll do a little Swedish here, then I'll give you the, the English, but it's called right, Barn, sure, totally. Barn Rights Bureau, which basically means Children's Rights Bureau. And so they have a brilliant model, I think. What they do is they advocate for the most vulnerable children in Sweden, which in many cases are refugee children, often unaccompanied youth refugees. And so Sweden generally has pretty good human rights and especially good children's rights. But not every person would know that, especially if you're brand new to this new culture, this new country, maybe you don't speak Swedish. And so they approach the systemic challenge in two ways, two other meaningful ways. The first is they provide direct service. So they work with these children who are maybe not having their needs or their rights respected, and they advocate for them. So they've got social welfare workers and lawyers and so on to make sure they get the rights they need. But then they also start recognizing patterns. So they start saying, oh, well, it looks like you know, three children from this municipality all fell through the cracks in this one way. Now let's take what we've learned in the direct service, and now let's advocate for change, policy change, systemic change at the municipal level, at the national level, maybe even at the EU level. And so I really love that way of thinking about their change on two different levels, that they're providing this sort of urgent and acute care that's so needed. But they're also thinking about how they can create deeper systemic change. And in doing so, they partner with, of course, the children, with maybe their schools or the doctors, healthcare systems, then also at the really national level also to create that change. Well, uh, Alex, we talked a lot about change and how to become an effective change maker. If one of my listeners is facing several things in an organization that really need changing, what would be the most important first steps to take uh, if you were consulting with them? So we've got to have a bias towards action. I teach something called the change maker impact equation. And I teach at Berkeley, which has had Nobel Prize winners in mathematics and physics. And I am the last person that should ever be teaching any math in my class. And so I only teach one single equation the whole semester, and it's the impact equation. And so I simply say that your impact as a change maker is equal to your mindset and your leadership, put in parentheses, right? So mindset plus leadership, that multiplied by your action. So it doesn't take a mathematician to know that any number multiplied by zero is zero, right? So even if you have the mindset, even if you have the leadership, if you never take action, you're never going to have any impact. So we've got to have a bias towards action, but it can feel really scary for folks. It can feel like really overwhelming to think about how I'm going to create that change. So I'll share two kind of ideas, resources here that I think are helpful. The first comes from terrific work done by Damon Santola at the University of Pennsylvania. He looks at tipping points. And so his research is all about, okay, we often think that in order to create change, we've got to get a ton of people on board. But his studies have shown that it's actually a surprisingly small amount. He's found that only 25% of people in a group need to adopt a new norm for it to be likely that the entire group takes it on. So when I've worked with nonprofit leaders, that's changed the entire way they think about pursuing change. Because it's very easy to think, okay, if I'm going to make this thing happen, I've got to get, it's a team of a you know, 50-person staff, I've got to get 48 people on board. But no, actually, Santola teaches us that probably a 50-person staff get 12, 13 people on board, it's likely that's going to happen. So instead of thinking really big, focus on getting those early champions involved. Get them excited about the cause and delegate to them, make them feel part of it, and let them bring others on board as well. Use the power of social science there, the tipping points, to make change feel a little bit more achievable. The second suggestion I'll make is that if you feel scared about taking action, you are not alone. 
This is something I found to work with thousands of changemakers all around the world. And so to address this, I built a tool, which is called the Changemaker Canvas. Those of you that may have used like business model canvas, it'll feel very familiar to you, but it's all about how do you lead change and how do you take those crucial but challenging first steps of change? If any of your listeners want to take a look, you can go to changemakerbook.com slash canvas and download a copy for yourself. But the idea here is that you do some upfront work where you think through everything from, you know, what's the why behind this change that I'm leading to, you know, what are some of the root causes leading to this change to who's an evangelist meant to get on board, you know, someone who won't be active day to day, but if they could just give us a yes, kind of open some doors for us, could have outsized impact. And so you spend one, two, three hours working through this canvas upfront. And then the magic is that the problem just from a strategic question to an execution challenge, right? You've done the work up front. You see how all these blocks, all this logic fits together. And then it's just a matter of, okay, I know what to do. I've just got to take that first step. It can make change feel a lot less scary and you can go into your change with a lot more confidence. Well, really well said. And I want to go back a little bit to, you mentioned uh, that was a really fascinating stat about you know, approximately 20% is what you need when you're running to bring change into your organization. I don't know if this bears it out in the research, but from your experience, is it typically though really important that the that 20% are, are the key leaders of the organization or does it matter? Is as long as you get about 20%, that's the tipping point to get change to happen with the rest of the organization. Could you speak to that one? That's the best part about it. And so, of course, if you can get the CEO, the executive director on board, for sure. Yep. Impact. But the data show, no, it's really just about sort of that groundswell of support. And so it can be very bottom up in that way. So it's much more sort of inclusive than, than one might think. You know, one of the frameworks that I love that I teach in the book is work done by the organization called Nobel. That's N-O-B-L. And they write about the three types of people you meet while leading change. They say, okay, you've got your champions, your fence sitters, and your cynics. And so the champions, they say, these are people to get involved early, right? So those are people that maybe they don't have like high level seniority, but they're just really excited about your idea, right? Maybe they're entry level, they're interns, but like get them involved, make them feel part of it. Then there's the fence sitters. And Nobel says, we tend to spend too much time on these fence sitters, but ultimately they'll sort of go whichever way the, the traction is going. You know, if things are going well, they'll probably jump on board. So don't spend too much time with them. Instead, focus on the cynics. They say, we should see cynics as disappointed idealists. But actually, maybe they want to believe in this cause. They just sort of don't know exactly what's happening quite yet. So listen to them. And that's the experience that I felt myself when I was leading Start Some Good. We had a crowdfunding crowdfunding site for social impact. And we were going up against some of the big players in the field. So think Kickstarter, Indiegogo, venture-backed companies, huge technology teams, engineering teams. And we had a team of two. They're great engineers, but they're buddies of mine from undergrad at UCLA, and they're working part-time. And so I get these emails from users, and the amount of passion, what's called passion, they would put into complaining about a lack of a feature or a bug on the site would shock me at first. And so my first inclination, of course, was to be defensive, to be like, hey, don't you realize, like, I'm trying to build the site, like, we only have, like, 10 hours of tech support per month, per week, per day, like, how can we compete with them? But instead, I found ways to listen to them. And I sort of shifted my thinking to say, well, how amazing is it that they actually care enough about this feature on this relatively unknown website that they would spend the time writing a six-paragraph email about a feature or a function that they want? And so I started seeing them less as cynics, but more as people that could be part of the movement with us. So I invited them to beta test a feature when it would come out to keep them involved in updates. And they often became some of our greatest champions. And so as you're leading change, if we go back to that very first question you asked, Rob, which was a smart one, which is, you know, lean change is hard. Remember that resistance can be rational. 
And so when you see that resistance, do you just sort of put up your defensive armor and say, oh, I'm going to forget about you, just go around you? Or can you see that as a way to deeply engage people in the change? And if you can shift some of those cynics into champions, you could have a powerful groundswell of support. That's fascinating. And this may be a little bit formulaic, but in that example that you give, is there a percentage of time that a leader should pour into the cynics and trying to convince them to you know, accept the change and, and really work with them? Or should you work more with the initial champions or maybe the fence sitters? Is there kind of a breakdown in terms of percentage of where your time should go to convince those who need to change? Mm, that's a great question. I'm not sure that I have the answer to it other than one approach you can take is to find ways to get your champions to also engage with the cynics. Because oh, that's nice. I like that. Yeah. There's some really fascinating data. Maybe you've heard of this concept called the humble brag, right? So that's the idea that like you want to brag about yourself, but you couch it in like humility. So it's like, oh, I'm so tired today because it was such a long flight flying first class, but you know, I'm just so tired, right? It's like a, a way of like bragging about yourself, but in a way that's humble. So what the research finds is that that's the worst thing you can do. The best thing you can do is not brag about yourself, not be humble, but have someone else brag about you. So in other words, when someone else says something nice about you, that's going to have the biggest impact. And so that's perhaps the way you could think about it is that you find ways to engage your champions to address and work with some of the cynics because it's more powerful when you hear from someone else that believes in the cause, believes in the mission. And that could be a, a signal effect that, hey, there's something here. I like that. That's a good example. Well, this podcast is all about leadership, as you know, and I'm wondering as you look into the future a little bit with all the experience you have with leaders and change makers, could you share a bit about the biggest leadership challenges that nonprofits are facing and how are you helping them to tackle these challenges? So here's one that I see all the time with nonprofit leaders is unfortunately, I see so many of them try to coast by on mission and purpose. So I think it's wonderful. A lot of people get into the nonprofit world because they want to have that sense of purpose, that sense of impact. But I find a lot of leaders tend to lean too heavily into that mission and purpose. Sometimes we talk about this in the business world of there's sort of purpose factors and hygiene factors. Purpose is like what motivates you, gets you excited. But hygiene is like making sure that you, like, you get paid on time, you get paid fairly, that there's healthcare, like these other things along the way that you run decent meetings. And I find that oftentimes, executive directors may sort of abuse the passion, the purpose in the organization to say, hey, we don't have to be quite as well run because we're so purpose-driven. But I think that we're getting to the place in the world now where more and more companies are also becoming purpose-driven, that purpose is now table stakes. That's not enough to just coast by on your purpose and your impact. You've got to also take care of your people in a meaningful way. That doesn't mean that your salaries need to be as high as the corporate world. That's fine. But make sure you have those other things in place that you don't just sort of skimp on HR or good vacation policies or parental leave policies. And you take care of your people and that you think about being not just an inspirational leader who has impact, but also an impactful manager, someone who takes good care of their people. Something I work a lot with nonprofit executive directors on and something I think that in general, the nonprofit world would, be, would do well to pay more attention to. That's fascinating insight. Yeah, I've never had anybody share that before. Just that, yeah, you're right. We can't lean too much into mission and, and vision be simply because um, that could make an excuse for not running a good organization. So well said. I like that. Well, I think there's going to be a lot of people that will hear this podcast, want to find out a little bit more about you, find out more about your book, Changemakers. How can they do that? What's the best way to connect with both your book and with you? Love connecting with folks on LinkedIn. So please find me there. Let's connect there. Let's talk changemaking there. Just under my name, Alex Budak. And if you want to check out the book, you can go to changemakerbook.com. And that's where you can also access a couple of the resources I talked about today, including the Changemaker Index and the Changemaker Canvas. 
Well, Alex, so so appreciate your insights. Thanks for taking time to be on the show. And thanks for writing this book. I think for, as a nonprofit leader myself, it's so important to have books out there that inspire us and give us you know, a pathway to help us navigate through all the leadership challenges we face. So thank you for investing in the nonprofit sector. Oh, thanks, Rob. You're a change maker that inspires me. So grateful that you had me today. And thanks for our conversation. Ah, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. Hey, friends. Well, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to other podcasts. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will actually help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. You can also join the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast community, find other resources and interviews of past guests all on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.